Shumai, yo, if you haven't already seen the update uh, regarding uh, this sort of step change, the uh, the watershed moment that 101 is number 101 is, then you need to check it out. Just check on the social media for the uh, the the update from uh, that's been put on the HR podcast feeds, and uh, we'll see if part of that is the announcement that my sponsors uh, who have been with me, two of them who have been with me right. From near enough the very start, uh, Rugby for Heroes and uh, the Aardvark Group, they have uh, renewed me for another year and they have been enablers of uh, the, the studio that uh, this podcast has been recorded from. So a studio uh, specifically for, for use by Hugh and for the HR Podcasts and uh, Leading Mind Series and also for local community and uh, Old Lemontonians RSC on which the, uh, the grounds it, the studio is based. So gives me great pleasure to tell you that my sponsors today are Rugby for Heroes, a not-for-profit organisation formed by keen rugby players out of Old Lemontonians RFC. Um, they're also uh, the person, the inimitable person who is behind, uh, who is at the helm of Rugby for Heroes, Mike Valance. He is also one of the founders of the Forces Barbarians RFC. The Rugby Club for HM Forces Veterans. Uh, rugby Heroes were formed in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whitaker in 2009 after he was sadly killed on operations with the Parachute Regiment serving in Afghanistan. Rugby Heroes organise fundraising events to raise money for military charities. They organise and conduct one to two events a year, although they're trying to step those up and, and do more events, but COVID put a kibosh on that. But considering they only do one to two events a year since their inception, the fact that they've raised over £110,000 for military charities is a staggering amount of money. That's how much effort goes into the events and the charity fundraising that Mike and Rugby Heroes do. Um, they did have a load of events lined up for this year. Uh, they fell by the wayside because of COVID, but... The team at Rugby Heroes are intent on trying to get something done this year still. So their events range from supper clubs to beer and drink festivals to rugby festivals and rugby matches. Um, you need to keep up to date with what's happening with them online to wait for these new dates to be announced for the, for the next event. And you can do that by going to the website at <laughs> their website is not at you. It's uh, it's, uh, rugby for heroes dot org, but the social media is at here at rugby number four heroes. So keep uh, keep up to date with rugby for heroes. Definitely follow them on uh, Instagram. They're on Twitter. They are on Facebook at rugby number four rugby number four heroes. And I shall see you at one of their future events. Definitely see you at one of their future events. I try and get to all of their events since I uh, since I discovered them. And I want to keep getting to all the events uh, in the future. So if I see you there at one of the events, I shall uh, I shall buy you a pint. Just remind me. Say, oi, you said you'd buy me a pint if I came to one of the Rugby Heroes events. And I will. I promise I will. Thank you to Mike and everybody at Rugby Heroes for supporting the podcast, supporting the military community and everything you do. And uh, it's great to be associated with you guys. Also sponsoring the podcast today are the Aardvark Group. Another sponsor has been with the podcast from the very start, near enough. Um, the Aardvark Group were founded in 1982. I was like one year old. It was done so with the express objective of developing a mechanical landmine clearing system, which would meet the design criteria which its founders considered to be the prime critical factors. 
namely for the clearance of all known anti-tank and anti-personnel mines, landmines, using mechanical manual means, and the location identification and disposal of all munitions and unexploded ordnance. In the process of developing the design criteria for mechanical landmine clearance equipment, it rapidly became evident that there were two distinct and mutually exclusive applications, which were minefield breaching under combat conditions and also post-conflict and humanitarian area clearance. The consequence of their design philosophy has been to produce the most effective specialised vehicle for the destruction or detonation of landmines while permitting the flail system to be adapted for attachment to a line line a mine not a line a minefield breaching system for more than five decades now the Ardvar group has developed technical innovations which support operators fighting at the front line of conservation and the protection of natural resources using the principles of detect protect and defeat detect the Ardvark solution encompasses their insight and foresight detection systems for the detection of explosive remnants of war protect the Ardvark solution delivers protection of conservation zones through the deployment of their invisible borders solutions and defeat the Ardvark solution utilizes advanced drone and counter drone systems to detect hostile activity protect the conversation conservation habitat and defeat any autonomous threats from the sea the land or the air i've seen their drones in action these things are beasts these are not back garden little quadcopter you got for 40 quid these are absolute beasts of what they do amazing pieces of kit you can find out more about the aardvark group uh by going to aardvark.group and also you can follow, follow them on social media they're on facebook they're on linkedin they're on twitter and they're on Instagram. So look for the Aardvark group and you and, and you will find them. Thank you to the Aardvark group for continuing to sponsor the podcast. And uh, also David St. John Clare, who's at the helm of that organization and who also does per, both personally and with the Aardvark group, does a huge amount for the military community. Thank you. On to the podcast. My guest today, my guest today is Tom Martinson. Tom Artison is former RAF regiment. He also used to work for the BBC as a documentary maker, and he has now got his own documentary or filmmaking production company. I should have just said production company, shouldn't I? Called Dust Off Films to do quality work. Tom also uh, was diagnosed with complex PTSD and has since uh, overcome it through uh, successful treatment. He's a really interesting cat, uh, really humble dude, um, and he is, uh, he has had a very, had a very unique experience, uh, serving in Afghanistan, um, with, uh, on, on a couple of operations out there, uh, where he spent almost his entire time flying with the medical evacuation response team. So everything he did was going out into, uh, extremely hostile situations to pick up, uh, the dead, the dead and dying, uh, injured, um, British forces, unfortunately. And it was a great pleasure to talk to him. That was it. This is the HR Podcast. My name is Hugh Keir, and my guest is Tom Martinson. Enjoy. I mean, we could stand toe-to-toe with everybody else once we've <laughs> finished the five-miler of death, so... Yeah. 
You, you were saying you know that guy, don't you? Everyone knows that guy. Where am I? Hang on. I'm not plugging again. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but as you, as, as Raf Reg, yeah. I thought, no, it wasn't you that knew him personally, the five miles. It was Bags. Bags. Bags' business partner knows him personally. Yeah. What are, well, uh, congratulations for being the first Raf Reg guy on the podcast, by the way. <laughs> and, you, um, what do you think of the five mile death? Um, well, th- that that whole thing is just total bullshit. It's like the, the so the last day of your live field firing, you you do a march to where you start start the range. So it's just like it's it's just a normal morning's fizz, and then that video turned it into this like absolute monstrosity that's going to haunt the Raf Reg for the next hundred years. Unless it gets disbanded in the next 10, which it may well do. Uh, so there is no five mile death? No. Why did he say that? I have no idea. <laughs> like, the, it's, it just boggles my mind because you, you have, uh, the, the last part of your training's field gunners and the last day is the, like, flight attack or platoon attack. Um, so it's, it's just another, another day on the range. There's no, like, this is the big final march of your training or anything like that. It's just walk to the range and, and go and throw grenades at things. It's, yeah, the, there is no five miler of death. And there definitely isn't now after that. And the weird thing is, I, right, the weird thing is about this is that because he said that and that video came out, yeah. I thought that the RAF Reg must have a five miler as part of their like selection process, or whatever. And, but there's not, yeah. and now, but no. there, loads of people now think they must be, they must have a five miler or something. Yeah, no, it's not part of the. It's nothing to do with it at all. Um, how long did you how long did you serve Uh So, just short of six years, so five and a half years already. So I joined um, when I was seventeen, two thousand and seven, and then left like two thousand and twelve, early two thousand, yeah, late two thousand and twelve. So how did you find it? Uh, I think depending on when you joined, you had a very different experience. So I, I did two Afghan tours, um, and because of the type of work that I was doing, I think my experience is probably very different to lots of other people. So, I mean, I spent a lot of time on that. Um, and obviously I don't really know anyone that came off that job in quite the same mental state that went onto it. So it's, um... Yeah, I think in the Ref Reg you could have a very easy time or a very difficult time depending on when you join. For us, it was probably quite a difficult time, really. So for, for your so for your entire time on both tours in Afghan, you 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 did it almost entirely on the medical medical evacuation response team, right? MERT. Um, I did a I did a lot of time on it, but not you know not the whole thing. So we we would rotate through different jobs. But on my first tour in two thousand and nine, we went out as like a forward. There was uh, one flight of us went out early. Um, <clears throat> and because we were the first people to start doing MERT, it then became, or the first Ref Reg people to start doing MERT, um, it then became sort of easier to keep those same people on there for a lot longer because we'd done more medical training. We'd spent more time with the the crew and things. So it just sort of made sense to put those th- people back on again. And then that carried on on the second tour as well. Um, but we'd we'd rotate, so um, you know you you do 
how many days i can't even remember like eight days on there or something and then you go out and do uh test roll patrols and like patrols where you we had an ao around bastion that we'd go out which touched the like got to the edge of nad alley but nowhere really worse than that to be honest um so those patrols were pretty benign you'd like drive around occasionally you get blown up we didn't lose one guy from an id but um most of those patrols were pretty benign but then you'd go on mer and it was like the complete opposite end of that you you know every time you get on the helicopter you're flying to the worst place in southern afghanistan um which at first is pretty entertaining um but then it pretty quickly you know reality sets in yeah we did uh when uh, in 2006 when we were in that tournament it was just just three power there obviously the accident that supporting us <coughs> we would man that so yeah but but as you said it was it just fell to whoever there was the was the unit in Bastion at the time because we as much as we could we would try and rotate in and out of uh, we, we would try and rotate through areas obviously some places it wasn't possible um but they were trying for respite for reasons you can't keep no matter what the job you it's not it's not um, very good for your mental health but in, in anything I'm not just in the military you're doing the same job day in day out right um, exactly. and uh, particularly when we're talking about arduous tasks uh, and I, the it wasn't called the was it called the was it called the Mert in 06 so oh. they, there was IRT which was immediate response to it was IRT then, yeah. it was like, we call it we call it IRT I, I, it might have been a Mert at the time either way I rotated through and I didn't realise so it makes sense though if it makes sense for that task to fall as the as the troops in Afghan got bigger. It makes sense for that task to fall to whoever whatever unit is sort of um, IC Camp Bastion, doesn't it? Um, what was what was so mentally challenging about it? Um, that's probably quite a big question, actually. You're a big um, boy. You're a big boy. Can't have it. <laughs> so. I think, you know, it's just like being a paramedic or anything. You're seeing really, really traumatic scenes day in, day out. Um, and the majority of it you can kind of distance yourself from because it's just, you know, you look at a body as like a car. It's like, which bit's broken? Like, where's the oil coming from? We'll stop it. Um, but then occasionally you'll get something like, you know, you'll, you'll see someone who's um, their, you know, their, their boots aren't issue. So you'd now think that person had to go into a shop and decided he wanted those boots. And so then you instantly put a character to that body. And then, you know, and that's when it becomes a lot more difficult. Picking up civilians was really difficult as well. Um, picking up special forces I found difficult because you'd look at a person who's like dedicated their entire life to being, you know, the best soldier they can be. And they are like incredibly fit at the absolute pinnacle of what they're capable of as a, as a human being. And then they're just blown to pieces and all of that work is undone. So that was very difficult to, to see as well. Um, so yes, yeah, seeing anyone in a really bad state is never a pleasant experience. Um, but when you've got people that started here, like that morning, they woke up and they were here. And now for the next five years, they're going to be, well, at like minimum five years if they survive they're going to be right down here so like seeing seeing like people's you know it's the every time the radio would go it would be the worst day of someone else's life and 
you know, once that gets into your head, it becomes very difficult to then shake it. And, you know, Merck goes from being this kind of cool job, flying into firefights, getting shot at, saving saving lives, to then just being like, I've got to see it again. And every time the radio goes, it's like, oh, fuck, okay, someone else has, like, lost their legs or whatever. And the other, the other thing that would, because we would rotate and one day we were out on patrols and the next day we were in the back of a helicopter watching people that had been blown up and shot. When you go back out on the patrol, you're thinking like, that could be me. Um, and so it, there's loads of different levels. And even though the, the area that we were working in was pretty um, relatively safe in comparison to what guys were doing in the, in the green zone, um, it still was quite difficult to sort of deal with. Well, I, I found, I'm sure there were other people that were better than me and other people that were worse than me, but um, it's difficult to deal with. Yeah, I can imagine. I hadn't, it's, uh, I hadn't, it's something I hadn't thought about before like that. Uh, I, I'm, so I'm thinking about that repetition of the activity uh, and I was sort of not comparing it, but I was realising it's, when you're on a, most of my time I was, you know, in patrol bases and stuff like that and on the tours I did. And, uh, and he sort of had the same thing, you know, it's like, man, you got to go back out there. It's a nightmare. But what's different, I think, to what you're talking about, the medical evacuation stuff, is that every single time you go out, it's because someone's in clip, you know. Uh, and when you go out on patrol, you don't get a casualty every time. You get, depending where you are, you get a lot of, ca- you know, casualties yeah. frequently, but you don't get it every time. And, you know, you, you, on the second, third tours onwards, you wouldn't necessarily get shot at every time either. Um, so to have to go out and deal with that, uh, yeah, that must be hideous. It's something I would not like to do, especially when you start. One of the things we do, I think, when we uh, people do is when they have that they experience like c- c- catastrophe. Um, whether you were there when the catastrophe happened or you're in the aftermath of it, is we, I think. One of the things we do is we, we quite often de- try and dehumanize things and then you get you know, the disassociation and stuff like that, the more, more extreme ends of it. But when you start then being able to relate to the person who's in tatters, like you said, different got an Ali set of boots on. Exactly. I like Ali boots. He's like me, you know, yeah. or, uh, you know, pretty, even just small as he's got a, he's a British, British soldier. Yeah. You know, that uh, makes it, must have made it very difficult. Yeah, I remember uh, during Panther's Claw and all the Panchai Palang mess in, when was that, 2009? Um, one of the, we picked up, so we had two helicopters running, um, two Chinooks, and, you know, we we're basically just constant, like we were overtaking, like passing each other in the sky, um, just picking up groups of casualties after groups of casualties. And I remember there was one guy who, uh, I, I'm not entirely sure what had happened to him, probably involved in a huge ID with the rest of the, you know, the bodies all over the place in the helicopter. And I remember talking to him and he was into motocross. And I, you know, I'm not into motocross, but I'm into downhill biking. And at the time I was racing downhill bikes. So we had this story about how he was going to, we were talking about how he was going to spend his packs insurance on a new motocross bike. And, you know, because you're having that conversation, he was actually, I mean, I'm sure he's, He's fine, um, based on his injuries. I, I don't. I mean, I hope he didn't have anything lasting. Um, but yeah, when you start having those conversations, you, yeah, you know, instantly humanise people. Um, 
Yeah. How did you, as it went on, because um, you've, you've spoken openly in the past about, with me anyway, about the impact that had on you. Um, when did you get out? Uh, so I left, uh, I think it was mid-2012. It kind of all a bit, of, that whole time was a bit of a blur, to be honest. Oh, you, um, yeah, you left not long after me. I left sort of, yeah, September 2011. Yeah, okay. So I, I finished my second tour, spring 2011, and then, and maybe it was later, 2012. Anyway, um, it might have even been early 2013, thinking about it. But yeah, I mean, I, I had a weekend between leaving the Air Force and starting with the BBC. So it was a bit bit mad. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I suffered with complex PTSD for quite a long time. And it it was always one of those things that never really, you don't really realize that you're suffering with it and you just think i had an episode when i was drunk but maybe i'm just drinking too much um and fortunately i was in a you know good enough life position where i was just like i'm drinking too much i'll stop drinking so i did but then the symptoms didn't go to work, go away um and then you know you throw yourself into work so that distracts you uh but then something happens with work and all of a sudden you you know, or the bedrock you had that you were surviving on, you fall through, and then you you fucked. Um, so yeah, I was. I think I think most of the like mental damage was done in uh, the 2009 tour, and then doing the same thing again 2010, 11. I know on that tour I wasn't I wasn't myself, um, and then afterwards I just continued to get sort of more and more intense until. Um, 2015, after, so I was involved in the, I was on Everest during the earthquake and avalanche and stuff. Um, I had a load of people I was with died. And after that, I was kind of flavor of the month in the BBC for a little while. But when that went away, all of a sudden you've got not only all the Afghan stuff, but then this like surviving a huge earthquake and avalanche on Mount Everest. So then you've got that as well. And it, it became pretty apparent that I was either going to have to deal with it or lose my job in the BBC. So um, I dealt with it. Explain the Everest thing to me. <laughs> uh, so I was, I mean, this is a kind of slightly longer story, actually. Um, so one of the things I was doing with the BBC was uh, tracking down uh, jihadists. So I was um, <laughs> finding British jihadist fighters in Syria and then trying to interview them. Um, I was actually pretty good at that. Uh, I had a whole a list of a list of people. We followed people in Syria. The Shamina Begum. We followed her across Turkey and into Syria, and ended up like with her dad in a in an apartment in Gaziantep and all sorts. It was an interesting time. Um, I found yeah the last job I did. Uh, before Everest was uh, tracking down Jihadi John's dad in Q8. And we, we secretly filmed in the former employer of Jihadi, like Jihadi John's former employer's office, um, shook the hand of his dad, uh, went to where he used to live in the Bidoon community in Q8. Um, and to get a bit of respite from all of that, I thought, you know, this we're basically set up a BBC bureau on... Mount Everest, and I thought it's a nice, relaxing, kind of adventurous thing to do. Uh, just, you know, do a bit of climbing, maybe. I've always, I've climbed since I was 16, so 
like you know thought i'd do a little bit of climbing but nothing nothing too crazy and just live at base camp hang out um follow the story of everest and you know make some nice films and then uh yeah on the the uh sort of end of april we were doing our uh, first rotation which is where you um go up to like you spend a night in camp one up to camp two and it's like the first stage of your acclimatization um and originally i wasn't supposed to supposed to go on it i had like a load of bbc work i had to um catch up on at base camp and i thought i'll just i'll not bother and then at like 3 a.m heard everyone's climbing gear jingling and thought oh, fuck it i fancy a climb um so i uh went with the team up through the ice wall um and just as we got to camp one there was uh, everything like the so camp one is on a glacier and it's the top of the ice wall so it's where the glacier kind of goes off like a off a cliff basically and splits open and you end up with all these crevasses and things which is what the ice fall is so we're kind of suspended between two crevasses in camp one and the whole camp is like that and most of the time it's totally safe and you know it's yeah i mean camp one's not it's not exactly what you consider safe but comparatively in climbing it's pretty safe um and everything started shaking and we had like probably five meters visibility um so i was thinking like this is you know i've never been in avalanche before it was like well maybe the ground just shakes and avalanches and then the ground shook to the point where i basically fell over um and it started like going up and down as well as side to side and then i realized we were probably fucked um, looked over at the face of one of the really experienced um, climbers, Rolf, and his uh, climbing partner, Joe. And they were like, Rolf was like, uh, what did he say? I think he he just said like, this is it then. And like, if someone that's that experienced in climbing is saying this is it, then I was pretty confident that was it. Um, so I, I was absolutely sure I was dead. Uh, climbed into the tent press record on on the camera and just sat on the floor and waited to die um uh so so you were you were sitting above what you were above a massive drop yeah and the tent was it, oh, this, why is that the tent was um suspended on a, a platform how so, many of you on the, how many of you on the platform um so the way camp one sort of works is you have like ridges um and between the ridges chances are there's a crevasse because it's where the glacier opens so there's like um, rows of tents on the top of these ridges with crevasses in between, and there's safe there's safe bridges and ice, uh, ice bridges and safe ways to walk between them. Um, so, uh, in Camp One, I think there's about I can't remember exactly. There's probably there's more than more than a hundred people there. Um, other climbers. I mean, Everest is is a busy place, and that was like that was the first day that everybody decided to climb. Yeah. Um, so it was it was busy, um, but on you know in our team the tents are really spread out though. So you know that you're probably talking like a, a kilometer from um, one row of tents and the f like the highest tents and the lowest tents kind of thing. So you're really spread out. So in our in our little bit for our team there were uh, if I took a bit longer I could work out exactly how many. But probably seven, eight, mm -hmm. with another few people that were just slightly slower through the ice fall so they were they were on their way up um so yeah what happened what do you think about when you wait when you're sitting there this is the only time 
this is the thing with this fight. I can I can sort of relate to I can sort of relate to this. The feeling I reckon um, the only time I've ever been I felt fear when I was serving was when it was a situation where I couldn't do anything about it. And I'm literally like, oh my god, this could be it. And it was with a mate of Michael Jared. Wait, he's, he used to host a podcast with me, and uh, we were under under fire from mortars. And at the point, I've explained it before, but there was nothing to do about it. At that point, there was zero we could do about it, and it's the most horrendous feeling I've ever had. Not being able to do anything about it. How was it for you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, your facial expression is pretty much how it was. Um, yeah, you—it's an odd feeling because you—you know—I wasn't scared at all. I, nah, I, in the, in one sense, I was petrified. Like be, you kind of go beyond fear. It's like you—you've—you've you've gone past fear. You know you're petrified, but that doesn't really count anymore because there's um, so much other shit going on. And I just felt really disappointed in myself. It was like, why? You know, because I, you know, my, I've got a. I'm very fortunate in that I have a lot of people that really care about me, family-wise. Um, and I knew that by me dying in such a stupid situation, um, I've ruined their lives. So it was like, I didn't. I didn't need to climb. Like Everest is a fucking pointless exercise. It's like completely an exercise in massaging your own ego um so what the fuck am i doing here and like i'm gonna die for the sake of massaging my ego and just because i fancy to climb this morning um so i was just embarrassed to be honest it's like i just felt really really stupid um and yeah so you've you've passed fear and at the point of just feeling like an idiot well, mate, you're feeling like that because you're a good person. I mean, you, when you're when you're about to spank in, and what you're thinking of is other people's feelings. Oh, it's great. it says a lot about your character. You don't think about that, you know. Uh, um, what were, what was I going to say then? Uh, oh God, no, I can't remember. What the bloody hell was it? Oh no, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I think in those kind of situations, again, catast- catastrophe. The, what people do around you as well is a big factor. I mean, you see people screaming and panic. It's contagious in like situations where nothing's happened. And, and you know, you sit with a bunch of experienced climbers and they're calm and you're more likely to be calm. Well, you, you know, it's, uh, you don't freak out. It's, yeah, it's, um, yeah. it's probably quite a rare scenario as well. You can actually, you've got time to contemplate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think I'd rather not have that. No, I, I'm not sure I would either, but. Um, it's nice to have had that and not had to die. I mean, that's that's a positive. What what happened? Tell me, talk me through what happened. Um, so we, uh, because of the weather, we were basically trapped in camp camp one for uh, two two three days. I can't remember exactly, but I think it was about this three is after days after the earthquake. Yeah, um, and we there were constant aftershocks. So the earthquake triggered a huge avalanche, um, and the avalanche destroyed base camp, um, killed. Uh, f- well, four, three of our Sherpas and four people that I knew well. Um, and we, you know, we thought it was just something that had affected us, but we quickly realized it was actually a much bigger problem below. And I don't think anyone died in Camp One, um, certainly not from from the avalanche. I mean, maybe, I don't, I don't think anyone 
I don't think anyone did die in camp one or two, but in base camp, it was not good. Um, How many died in base camp? I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but I think the official, it was something like 18, but I counted more bodies than that when I got down. So um, I'd need to, I need to check it. I can, I could Google it. But no, no, I can't no, remember exactly. off the top of my head. No. Um, enough anyway, enough to make a significant impact. Yeah. I mean, it was fortunate that everyone was climbing, to be honest, because if it had happened the day before, then that, the area of base camp, which was funnily enough, exactly where my camp was, um, that area would have, like being full of people and that area is completely decimated. I mean, it was like a bomb had gone off. My my tent had just evaporated. Um, Your kit was there, still there? Where, where yeah. yeah. My, I found Pelly cases 500 metres away, smashed to pieces. I took photos to Pelly, actually. I sent photos to Pelly and they never replaced the cases, gutted. Um, but but no, I found like bits of equipment smashed to, smashed to pieces all over the place. Um yeah, everybody that was in our camp died. Um, Henry, the like expedition leader, thankfully he was visiting another friend's um, camp, so he was okay. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, the major thing was was in base camp. For us, we were, uh, well, I mean, we, we were trapped there. We couldn't go anywhere. Um, every time there was another, uh, earth, every time there was an aftershock or anything, we'd get um, like, avalanched from from above um but they were powder by the time they got to us so it's just like being in a snowstorm um but that was happening probably at, at points every 20 minutes or so um and each time you get a yeah i mean you get into a bit of a rhythm with it um where you you just sort of accept that that's something that's going to happen and every time there's a little aftershock you the fear is there um but it's just something you have to accept and it's not like you can go anywhere um, so we more or less just had to, had to wait. And then we, we were running out of, um, so obviously you need, uh, gas to melt the snow to make water and you don't want to be eating snow cause it just cools you down too much. You get really cold really quickly. Um, especially when you're sitting around doing very little. So we started to run out of, um, gas to, to make water with, and then, uh, we got, got rescued, um, so they were flying helicopters from base camp up to camp one and they were, they could take two people in their bags, take them down and then come back up, two people back down. Um, so we had, I was uh, filming the a Gurkha team um, and there were a couple of guys who were Gurkha and a, a bit more than just Gurkha um, and they were like organising everything and organising the rescue. Was, um, yeah, I mean, it was a, there were a lot of people doing a lot of things to try and, Get everyone off safely. Um, a bit more than just Kirk, I mean XF, SF. Yeah, right. Yeah, anyone we know, probably. <laughs> Flipping heck, mate. So you leave the military because of all the death, because you don't like the death dodging, and you go to Everest and then the death dodging again and yeah. Syria. Right, right. Yeah. Mate, no one, no wonder, no wonder the complex PTSD is there. I mean, we can laugh and joke about it because yeah. we, we are. This is flipping nightmare. Um. How did you deal with that then? How have you how have you got to the point where you are now through that co- complex PTSD? At what point did you realise and how that it was more than just an alcohol issue? So, um, so it was never. I mean, I was fortunate in that it was never really a an issue with. Um, I mean, I, so I mean, I I knew really early on. Basically, I I went. Um, this was 
2011, just after I got back from the second tour, um, things weren't great. And then I went to a nightclub with a really good friend of mine and I had a total meltdown. Um, in what way? I'd basically, I was in the, in the club and then all of a sudden I was in a helicopter, um, and I needed to get out. So I like started fighting to get out of the club. Um, found my way to the door eventually. Hallucinating. Well, it's a bit more than it's, it's difficult to describe because you, you can smell everything like aviation fuel was like a hundred percent trigger for me. If I smell aviation fuel instantly, I was like back on a helicopter. So you, you have the same emotions you had on the helicopter. You smell the same things like you can hear the same or the, you know, the, the noises around you get blurred with like the noises of helicopters and, and things and bone drills. Um, so there's all this stuff like it's not like you're fully in the nightclub or fully in Afghanistan you're like wedged between the two but you 100% believe that you are in absolute peril and all of the emotions you felt in the helicopter which most of the time was sort of just complete sorrow for the you know poor fucker that you're trying to keep alive um so all of that comes comes straight back and I fought my way out of the out of the nightclub and then I was like rolling around on the floor in the street in Nottingham um which is not like me uh I'm I hate being out of control I'm virtually never out of control um and yeah I was shouting uh the name of the only person I knew that we we didn't even pick him up a guy called Liam Tasker who um was a dog handler uh, and he he was uh, shot with a sniper, was shot by a sniper, um, or sharpshooter, I should say. Um, and we went to go and pick him up. I I I didn't know him particularly well. He wasn't I wasn't someone I'd consider a like. I didn't know him as a friend, but I I knew him. I'd spent a bit of time with the dog section. I knew a few of the dog handlers. So um, so that was a death that kind of the it was almost like he was the. Uh, person who I attached all these other people to um and so yeah I realized there was a I was with my uh best friend Eddie as well and rather than you know Eddie helping out he he just rolled around on the floor next to me he was also uh ex-Ref Reg did a tour of Iraq so he just he just joined in <laughs> what, what do you mean roll, what were you doing rolling around what do you mean like so I, I was having my uh meltdown and rather than try and like stop people looking or whatever or like try and you know help me he just joined in so there'd be like you know he was just joining in with the kind of embarrassment of the situation so absolute legend um so i realized there was a bit of an issue there uh but i thought it was fine it was something i could just deal with myself um and then it, it started to become every time i drank too much i'd have these same things and so my way of dealing with that was to just not drink too much um which i know lots of people can't do but thankfully i could so i just sort of stopped drinking started doing lots of exercise and more mountain biking and that kind of kept it at bay for a little while um and then uh yeah then it got to the point where i, I realized i was thinking about it all the time um and i realized that i was hyper vigilant so I'd be I'd be in a restaurant or something and I would hear someone drop their fork like from you know 50 meters away and I'd know what table they were sat at 
and what they'd ordered. And I could hear the waiter talking to someone like at a table another way and your brain is just in overdrive and it's exhausting because you can't, you can't ever switch off. Um, so you just get more and more and more tired. And then when you get tired, you start to get more flashbacks. Uh, so it's, it's a bit of a, a spiral down. And I, after, so I kept it all at bay for quite a while. And then after Everest, I kind of realized my BBC career was going places. Um, I needed to keep that together. And I was at risk of, of uh, it all falling apart and losing it. Um, so I went and, well, I got a, uh, I already had a diagnosis for complex PTSD at that point, but I went and got another one and then uh, started therapy um, and did a therapy called EMDR. E EMDR? E I can't remember the exact um, acronym, but it's to do with eye movement. So you recite the stories um, or recite the intrusive memories and then you move your eyes and it's something to do with the yeah i'm not even going to try and get into the technical detail but it it worked incredibly well for me and we found um we found the sort of major incident that caused the whole thing and once we'd dealt with that and it was incredibly traumatic and hard like reciting that over and over and over again and reliving that same thing over again um but I just, I realized that I, you know, if I put a hundred percent of myself into it, really deal with the therapy, go all in, do everything I possibly can to get better, then I knew it would work. And it did. Um, and since then I've not had a single, since I finished the therapy, I've not had a single symptom. Like nothing. Mega. Um, so for anyone who's like, listening to this or watching this and is suffering go and do therapy because you know i'd be i was a, i was a shell before um and now i feel you know myself again yeah i, I we were talking before the podcast about um number 99 mandy mandy bostwick yeah <clears throat> and uh one of the things it was specifically related to tbi and uh, and she was basically one of the issues that came up with the the psychiatry side of things at Imperial College. And I mentioned the the report that was sort of doctored and bits that omitted and all that was um, was that what they were trying to say is some. It's obviously not the case with yourself, but with some some uh, some form some PTSD or a lot of PTSD in terms of military is caused by traumatic brain injuries, and it's a symptom of right. Uh, and therapy has a place there. It can be used to treat it. But one of the things she was saying is that on the, the first thing you look at, and one of the things that even assessing is the we were talking the physio, the the neurophysiology side yeah. of things. Um, and uh, and it's I'm I'm glad we ran this conversation because one of the things that came out of that podcast and one of the things things I think got. Got not misconstrued um well, that people may have sort of taken from it is that therapy has no place um which it, it does absolutely does and uh, but uh, they feel so strongly about the neurophysiology side of things that it was sort of was communicated in a bit of a, a not a poor way just it was just the way it went mm -hmm. um so i'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation because there is a place for therapy man i'm so flipping mega it, it, it works i'm glad you're in a, in a, in a much better place uh, how why did the um 
How did how did desktop come about? How did desktop films come about then? Um, so I, uh, so at the end of my BBC career, um, gonna be a bit careful here, but I, <laughs> I had a a job in uh, the BBC World Affairs Unit that I really I loved. I was a video journalist. I was traveling all over the place. Um, making you know what my job is basically to go to places where there's breaking news and tell the kind of side story um so i would be with a correspondent and a camera operator um but i would be looking for for an extra story there or an extra film to make to you know predominantly for the website and online content and i love that job i was working with like the best people i've ever worked with like the producers were incredible, the correspondents were incredible, camera operators were just the best in the world. Um, and when I was uh, doing the therapy, um, my job basically evaporated. Um, so I obviously I was concentrating on getting better, so I didn't notice that my job was basically being um, removed from the World Affairs Unit. Um, and so uh i wanted to uh move out of that and go into so so one of the, one of the things that the world affairs unit gave me was enough time to be able to do proper investigations and really get to the bottom of what the story was so i did an investigation that lasted probably uh well just over a year where i've followed um, with the help of a guy called Nick Jensen Jones, who's a weapons expert, really good guy, um, we followed a rifle from a factory in Belgium um, to Gaddafi's like shock troops through the Libyan civil war, and then it ended up with uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Gaza. So uh, Quentin Somerville, the correspondent, he went to interview PIJ and. Um, they showed him one of the one of the weapons that was from this original shipment. We had shipping documents in that we got uh, from Libya. Um, and we managed to track this rifle from factory, like through legitimate arms trade, and then interviewed the people that handled the weapon through the Libyan civil war, and then all the way through tunnels into, you know, Gaza. Um, and that made me realise that documentaries. And long form stuff is where I wanted to be. I could do that in the in the World Affairs Unit, so I would have kept doing that if I had the opportunity. Um, but that opportunity didn't exist anymore, so I wanted to go into documentaries. Um, and I realised that all the all the the types of documentaries that I really wanted to get into if uh, done by freelancers. Um, so I uh, joined the uh, news gathering camera unit. So I got taught by some very good camera operators in the BBC. Um, and after like six months of mentoring with them, I realized that like setting up my own independent documentary production company um, and going independent was the way to go. Um, I got, uh, there was a this amazing guy called uh, Frank O'Keefe, who is trying to save the planet at the moment. Um, literally trying to save the planet he's worth googling um 
he bought me uh, my first set of camera equipment um, and then that was it. So it's been, what, three and a half years now. We're now working with um, uh, Diamond Docs, who are a production company based in LA that have won two Oscars. Um, we're working on a number of films together. We're working with the UN on a film in Mozambique. Um, I go to Kenya in two days' time to uh, a film with the Rangers in um, the Barana Conservancy, which is part of a, a really big project. It's the first first part of a very big project, hopefully. Uh, we've got some really good investors involved in that as well and some very interesting and interested people who hopefully will push it you know, more into the, into the public eye. Um, so yeah, the things with dust off is going very well. Smack up, smack up. Um, is that in the Africa stuff with, uh, veterans for wildlife? Uh, so I'm through a friend of mine. We're trying to get in touch with veterans for wildlife. Um, I'll just realized, yeah, yeah, I'll put, yeah, I'll put I was going to say uh, Jim, Jim Glancy on the podcast yeah. twice. I'll put in, I'll, I'll, I'll drop my line. Yeah, that would be, that'd yeah, be yeah. awesome. Don't have to remind me, mate. My memory's terrible. We don't have to this, definitely. Yeah, but there's loads of stuff out there. Um, I know that I'll be back on again soon. Yeah. yeah. Well, Diamond Docs. So what, yeah. what did Diamond Docs get the Oscars for? What, what documentaries, documentaries did they do? Um, so they, Icarus is one of the ones they got an Oscar for. And I think, is it Cove? I don't know about Cove, but flipping Icarus. Oh yeah. my God. <laughs> exactly. What yeah. a, well, that is mega. Yeah. That is a mega doc. That's the one about um, the the, uh, the doping, the doping scandal. Yeah, in Russia. Exactly. <sighs> yeah. So they uh, they also made uh, made Pavarotti recently with Ron Howard. Um, so, I mean, that's like dream come true for me. And the the producer at Diamond Docs, a guy called Michael Shevloff, is an absolute legend. He's become my kind of mentor, really, in the world of documentaries. Like he's forgotten more stuff than I'll probably ever learn. Hmm. Yeah. Mate, I, I was thinking about it before. We, I'm just going to go completely off topic, but it's what I. Mate, well, there's no surprise there. But uh, I was thinking about it earlier when, when we met. Went after Chris flipping Shirley <laughs> and his bloody disaster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and and piled in, and then you you know you give me a, a shout to RV in London, and uh, I noticed then I know you like you really you really. <laughs> Sounds silly. You're really calm, mate. You're like you're quite softly spoken, and uh, and it, it, it's quite uh, unique in the way you are like that. Um, and I was thinking earlier. I, I was I just want to ask a question. Have you always been like that? Have you always been like this temperament? Because you're super switched on, obviously, mate. You've got a successful business, right? You're an intelligent individual, but then you got a background of just carnage, <laughs> <laughs> and but you're just this completely chilled out. Is this has this always been your temperament like this? Yeah, well, I mean, th- th- one of the major reasons I knew there was something not quite right with PTSD is because I I wasn't as calm as normal. I mean, I was probably the most calm person with complex PTSD ever, but no, this is this is me, ninety <laughs> percent of the time. And I get the more the more carnage I'm surrounded by, the more calm I get as well. Maybe that's what attracts me to it, but I don't know. That's an interesting observation. Yeah, that's an interesting one because I I um one of the things that which has sort of evolved in me over time is that when there is a catastrophe, I think I'm sure Mandy called it dissociation. I think it's just, I don't think, I don't think it's a good thing, right? <laughs> but it's uh, just being able to switch off. Emotions get switched off when you sort of deal with it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, 
yeah, I I think um, that's good in a way. But then at the same time, you're not dealing with it on on the on the surface level immediately. It causes all the dramas. Like, well, yeah, I'm sure that's called dissociation. I don't know, but Probably. I think a lot of people with our backgrounds are like that. A lot yeah. of it's just I don't see how else you can you can deal with repeated drama. You yeah. know, uh, threat to life without. Uh, you like you couldn't do it and freak out every time. No, <laughs> you'd only do it once if you freaked out. Um, yeah, I, th- I think. Uh, I mean, my way of dealing with stuff like that when it when it's all gone really wrong, like when the shit has like flown through the the fan and there's a mess on a wall, um, when that happens you don't you don't think i'm on a mountain and i'm about to die i mean i I did for a certain amount of time but after that initial i've survived um you then just you don't think about the big picture or getting off the mountain it's just like what do i need to do right now it's like i've run out of water so i'll make some water and then it's like what's going to make my life now i'm now i'm going to survive what's going to make my life slightly more comfortable coffee well i have a coffee then you just you know deal with each stage as it comes and don't yeah as long as you look at the each tiny task in its entirety without getting swamped by the rest you're never going to get overwhelmed so you know like can i make water in this moment yes so well there's no need to panic then it'll be fine mate really really glad you brought that up actually i've just finished recently reading or audiobooking a book called a book called, I can't remember what it's called, <laughs> but it's by a guy called John Hodson, and I'm sure that's his name, John Hodson's ex-RAF. Um, I'm sure he was a pilot at an accident. Long story short, though, he is the, he runs the SEER school. He runs the Escape and Evasion, okay. and he runs the Survival School. No, he runs the Survival School for all of the British forces. Yeah. He had that. And um, and one of the things, it, the, the book is fascinating. It's basically a, it, it's a book that's the, to give you, uh, it's to give you, you know, it's sort of life, le- it's, oh, here are life lessons you can learn from people who survived crazy stuff, as in stuff you should never survive. You know, people who like walk for 30 days through a desert with no water and all that. How yeah. did you survive that? Or cra- plane crashes, or all that. But, book is so interesting mate it's so interesting for all those life lessons you can get from it. i learned a lot from it like oh, for, for example for example um if you get anxious about something you know people get anxiety from time to time even a short shorter period of time you get anxious about something for whatever reason you've got an exam coming up i don't know you got well, i don't know um one of the things that can have an immediate effect on reducing your anxiety is going is, is eating or the act of eating Right, so pretend to chew, pretend to chew food, right? Because what it does is, it when you're going in, when you're in that sort of anxiety state, your body is in, going into the, uh, oh my god, we got a problem in the real world, right? Sh- shut everything down, so shut your digestive system off, close them all down. We don't need it now. We need immediate resources at the limbs and we need to be able to like fight or flight. And through the act of chewing or or, or eating or actually eating. <clears throat> It tricks the body or forces the body back into activating the digestive system again, and so it brings it away from the we've got a crisis going on and brings the anxiety down level. How how simple is that? How yeah. simple is that? It's like flipping out, brilliant. And uh, but throughout it, the reason I brought it up is 
when you were talking there about you were on the mountain and on the mountain well you were on the mountain yeah flipping everest uh you're at camp one and you were you had tasks to sim- focusing on simple things to achieve one of the re- common themes among people who uh, the, the survivors, and when we're talking about there's teams or boats or crews of people, and some people have died in that 30, 60, 90 day nightmare. They died, they've, like sailors who have just deliberately drinking seawater to kill themselves and send themselves crazy. The difference between them and the survivors, one of the differences was the survivors were focusing on what could be done. What can we do? Yeah. You know, the, and is that simple simple task because one of the things is it, it sort of gives you hope because this is one of the things it gives you hope because you've uh, I mentioned this before and you'll know this I'm preaching it but ach- achievements setting yourself little tasks and achieving and achieving those tasks doesn't matter how small you are it's one of the things that helped me out of um, when I was in a, a bad a bad spot mentally and and it's recently a friend of mine who was in a real bad spot and uh, and I went down to see him, and then I came. I, I, and I said to him when I was down there, we were talking, and I said to him, "Look, it sounds sounds silly, but you need to set, set yourself a goal for tomorrow." And he was, "What do you mean? So set yourself a goal?" He said, "Well, I get up and I, I go. I walk my dog at half past six every morning." And I said, "But you do that anyway, right?" So, but set yourself a goal that's really easy to achieve, right? Easy to achieve. It doesn't matter, and you it has to be something you can do. Right, so and, and the goal was in the morning was make your bed because I'd heard that from Jordan Peterson's book Twelve Years of Life. Get up, make make your bed. Yeah, and um, was that the first one? It was. It was. It was the first one. Make your bed. And then, and then I rang her the next day. I said, "Did you, did you make your bed?" So yeah. So what? What's your task tomorrow? And he said, "Well, I." He said, "Oh, and he basically task for the next day was to eat healthy at lunch." So how are you going to do that? So I'm going to take my soup to work. I'm going to eat my soup. I'm not going to have any crap. I said, just don't forget the tin of soup in the morning, mate. <laughs> and he had the soup the next day, and that, and we, that, we did that for four or five days. And he, uh, he messaged me, he said, well, he said, uh, he, he saved my life. And that was it, like three or four days. <clears throat> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I don't know where that came from, mate. Um, so simple, because yeah. he was in a really bad place, and then little tasks. What I was going to ask you before was, do you think it's, uh, do you think it's easier to cope with that, well, I think I've just answered it, but do you think it's easy to cope with um, catastrophe, disaster situations when there's there's less stimulus? Is less stuff to distract you? It's easy to focus? Because I, the reason I ask is because I find that um, I find that people these days, especially the younger generations, they're just bombarded with information all the time, constantly, and they're not. Uh, my limited experience they're just not great at dealing with dramas they just can't think past the first level of solving a problem yeah i think um i think if you're so recently uh i say i'm calm all the time recently i i think with covid and not traveling and not being able to work i'm pretty confident i was depressed for for a couple of months um and when when you're in that state you take on all this like information from places you wouldn't normally take it on or like someone says something to you and you you take it literally as opposed to thinking about it rationally and when when you're not in a great place anyway then i think you take stimulus stimulus in a different way than if you are in a good in a good place um so i think if you're if you're constantly on your phone or looking at facebook and there's all this crap coming up and you're 
you know, you're you're dealing with your own, like, you know, not. I mean, dealing with an avalanche is pretty easy to do because you like. It's like if you're at home and there is a lion in your living room, you don't care about the fact you've not been able to pay the electricity bill because there's a lion lion in the living room. Like you've got to deal with that before you can worry about that and actually get you know if your brain is focused on being able to deal with those like life or death situations then often the normal stuff is much more difficult and i think um uh i think if you if you don't necessarily have those same life or death situations to deal with regularly then it's easy to sort of i don't know to take like a sad take or the um the other kind of life issues in a different in a different sort of way i don't know if that makes sense or not yeah yeah um, make, yeah it does make sense yeah it's, it's a difficult question actually i don't yeah i don't know i, I think yeah like all the all the really big the times when it's been life or death for me is like there is no distraction because it, none of it actually matters um and you just evacuate all of the all of that stuff doesn't matter anymore it's like i don't care about any of that i just care about this um as as part of that uh as part it's part of that way of thinking and the carryover into when you were suffering with your complex ptsd did you find that that attitude that spilled over into normal life so in terms of nothing nothing is relevant anymore nothing nothing um nothing can possibly be a problem or worth getting stressed about even bothering to think about because if <laughs> unless i'm yeah. getting shot at a bomb that in the middle of an avalanche you know then it means nothing yeah uh, that's you've nailed it there it's like i mean one of the things that i do struggle with is caring about normal day-to-day stuff because in the grand scheme of things it doesn't like i feel really confident that i i know what's important um and the important stuff i'll put everything into um and the only thing that's really important is people i think um so i'll put everything into that and maintaining you know relationships that i care about and making sure that you know and, and for me to be able to do that then obviously the big part of that is making sure that you're work is good and you're doing something you enjoy so as long as i keep that going then i can afford time to concentrate on making sure that you know people i care about are you know just you know the relationships are maintained um so when i think with ptsd it's it's very easy to just not care about a huge amount of of life that is actually quite important um and to get annoyed by little things so you know very good at dealing with an avalanche but waiting in a queue to buy milk like hating life shop i fucking hate shopping um and i get way more stressed shopping than i would in an avalanche like there's yeah um so that i mean that's a that's a bit of a strange one but yeah um yeah see it's 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 uh the thing is, I think you 
you should it's it, you shouldn't get stressed over everything. Like there is very right. little reason to get stressed over stuff, right? Yeah. But it doesn't mean the stuff doesn't matter. I mean, a classic one of that is the emotional side of things. Like, wow, hurting someone's feelings. Get get a get a grip yourself. And it shouldn't be that. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Hang on a minute. Was I in the wrong? Why the feelings? Yeah. It's um. It's a hard one, I, and I think anyway. I mean, PTSD even catastrophe, catastrophe aside, that can be a very easy channel of thinking to fall into just from having a uh, like a services background. I think hmm. because we just blase everything. We don't really give a shit about anything, and nothing. You know, you talk like yeah. nothing really matters unless it's military. Book the holiday next leave. Yeah, you're not going because you're on guard. You know, it's the same. Nothing, yeah. nothing matters apart yeah. from apart from what the machine the machine wants. Yeah. And I think when you're uh, when you're struggling with uh, mental health things, then you're not necessarily yourself. You're not thinking about things in the same way. So, like, it's easy to just like you said with the small tasks and routines. It's easy to fall out of that, um, and that's when you get you have real problems. I think so. Like when I was uh, depressed over the COVID thing, and everything was. I thought my whole life was falling apart. Um, you, one day I woke up at like 6am and rather than go back to sleep for another three hours, I'd listened to some death metal, ran a half marathon and I was good to go. And like instantly snapped out of the depression and since then I've been myself again. Um, so I think when, when you're struggling with mental health things, you're not necessarily thinking rationally dealing with stuff in the right way and it's very difficult to think rationally to make sure you do deal with it in the right way which is when you need like you did with your friend to make sure that they actually achieved something that day um i think once once you do that and once you get into that rhythm of achieving something then you're you're onto onto a winner and a, a really quick winner as well i think yeah, the it's interesting. I mean, the, 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 I think when we are, when we are, when I have these conversations about mental health sort of things, it's very. I I I I. It's, I, I always want to try and convey the fact. I'm, I'm not talking about the podcast. I'm having conversations in general. I always want to try and want to convey the fact, like what we're talking about. This is normal everyday like stuff that I would. I want my children to live and die by the die, but live by this stuff, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, because the way I, again, I read another book it was called Blueprint and stuff, by a behavioural geneticist called Rob Plowman i got to give him the podcast he's flipping amazing dude you need to read that book right it's about how our, it's how our, how our genes affect our behaviour right um, it's nature versus nurture yeah um, and one of the things he was, he, he's talking about uh, the m- mental health and he said, you know, we, we try and stick, we try and stick labels against everything, and it's useful to do in some occasions. Other reasons, it's like a money-driven and f- big farm and all this, right? But he's saying, it you can look at it just broadly uh, on your mental health on a big scale. Zero being you, that's you topping yourself. Zero, you know, and a hundred percent being I'm good to go, motherfuckers, <laughs> right? So everyone has a, a everyone has like a. We, we sort of all float, my, like my floating about happy, like c- content, no major issues could be a 60 or a 70 on that scale, right? And that, and everyone has a different point on it. And, and again, I'm generalizing you in the scale because you've got all sorts of stuff. You got, you know, you got emotional happiness. You got, it, it's all the, um, 
what do you call it? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You got all and potentially each, each one has a different scale, right? But generally speaking, I, let's say I'm floating about in the seventy because of my my past and what I've learned and been taught and my own experience, emotional experiences. I'm I'm now able to more quickly identify when I'm falling away from seventy and going creeping down, 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 down. Right, and the further I get away from seventy the faster that decline becomes, okay? And and uh, and like you were saying, so you, my, my mate, I need a name to that, my mate who I said, you know, I said, set yourself a task every day. I made, sh- I made the point of saying to him, this isn't about, this isn't, this isn't the fix, right? But what, what setting yourself a little goal and achieving it does is what it, it you're, he was at zero or one, okay? This is how bad he was on that scale. And it's about, you set yourself a little task, and every little achievement you do, it bumps you up a notch. So you're going from you're not on the one anymore. You're on five, right? When you you're going a bit higher on the scale. When you're a bit higher on the scale, it gives you a different perspective on the problems or the issues that you're facing mentally. You get a slightly different perspective. You feel slightly less crap, and so you're slightly better um, equipped to take yourself up to the next stage. You know, and like you were saying. Achievements are really quick wins. Even now, like I'm practicing, like, achievements are really quick wins. If I'm super stressed, and it happens less now, but if I get super, super, super stressed and like, anxiety hits me or something like that, I can, one, I know why it's happening. I go, ah, I haven't done fizz for flipping two weeks, for example. And that's, yeah. that's one, that is just one thing. I can easily identify that. Or I've been drinking too much recently. That's another thing. Or my diet's been crap. That's another thing. But I can just see those in a quick And So I'll do a quick win. I'll go, I'll, I'll make myself get into some fizz. Not because that's going to fix everything, but it's going to put me in a better mind state. And then guaranteed, I go out and do a run, you know, or swimming or whatever. Guaranteed, I am sailing through life for the next four yeah. weeks. Cause I'll, keep up the fitness i'll be making better decisions i'll be dealing with stress much better and that's what it's about it applies to everyone it's like people seem it seems to be just the accepted norm that it's like an underlying level of stress and anxiety or disappoint disappointment or discontentment it doesn't ha- you don't have to have that no. you don't don't there's stuff that's causing it and you can bloody fix it you yeah. can fix it you absolutely you can't make yourself be no one is 100 percent happy all the time from the millionaires down to the flipping tramps in the street right no one is right yeah. but what you do it yourself is to try and keep you as good as you can be just by just by just by doing those simple things what's more you'll live longer you'll be yeah. happier you'll you're more likely to live longer which means you're going to be more around you're going to be around longer for your kids for your loved ones for your friends you're going to have more an impact in your life more of an impact in society i don't mean like a grand way like said bill gates but Good people in society are good for society. <laughs> yeah. Bad people are not, right? Ill people are not. You know, it's that's I'm not saying ill people are bad people, but they're just not. You know, and the point I'm making is well, these things we talk about, uh, these fixes <coughs> in inverted commas. Man, anyone use them? And anyone? They're there for everyone. Having a shit day, having a crap day, go for a walk. Go on. Don't normally do it. Go for a walk. Yeah. Set yourself a little task. Eat, eat a bit better. Give yourself a healthy meal tonight. You don't have to have a healthy meal every day of your life, but have one tonight, you'll feel better for it. Yeah. <laughs> Even if you don't like the taste, you'll be like, I had a healthy meal. <laughs> it's true though. People yeah. don't, it's, I, I, I re, it's one of those things I wish you could just shout it from the rooftops and go, yeah, look at all this stuff. We can, you know, you know all this stuff. Just take it and, you know, take these tools on board. Just think about, think more about your, how you feel emotionally. Don't just pay lip service to it. Yeah. Just, just think, take, okay, you feel shit. 
Okay, that's stage one. Now drill down to the next stage. Why? What reason? Then drill down to the next stage. You will get to a root cause or yeah. whatever it is. One of the root causes and fucking fix it. And then enjoy the next day. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it, I think uh, from speaking to people that have done ultra marathons and things, like they, uh, and Everest and like other ridiculous things, um, you have to go through this check, particularly on Everest, actually, you have to go through this mental checklist of like, okay, I've been walking for half an hour. Like, yeah, and you sort of do a mental scan of your body. So it's like, do uh, do my hands, like, can I feel my hands? Can I feel my feet? Can I, you know, am I really tired? Am I breathing too hard? What's my heart rate like? And you go through all these, like, this checklist of stuff to check that you are actually good to, to keep going. Um, I think mentally we should be doing that as well, where you just take a stop each, like take a pause and actually work out like, are you okay? You know, how, how do you feel? How did you feel that morning? Like, have you, is there something that you've not done today that you would normally do? Did you like not make the bed when you normally would make the bed or whatever it might be? I think we probably, we should, I think people should take time to learn about themselves more. And um, also exactly what you said, just, just the thing is, it's really hard. It. I think it's really hard to believe in what to understand what we're saying, the value of it, and and unless you've unless you've had to have a really really bad time to see the value, mm. you know. Um, uh, I mean, the, what it becomes, I think, is, and this is, you know, from my mate, all of my mates who have issues. It's not just like one same same with you. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, again, this is just people. People have people love they're on that they're on that scale somewhere yeah. i'm being careful not to say spectrum right they're on, they're on that scale somewhere right and um, but what it becomes for me definitely i am becoming more and more uh, uh, pro- proactive and aware than reactive okay so um i mean i, I yeah i this weekend i take a break away i just, i ran myself to the ground for 10 days and but i knew 10 days ago i knew because i knew it was coming up for 10 i had there's a load of stuff coming up over the next 10 days and I, I think I might have mentioned to her, Mrs. Uh, about some of it. I knew it was coming. And I could, at that point, I could have done some mitigation to change some of the stuff that was upcoming in the next 10 days. And I didn't. I didn't. And then 10, and then after that 10 days, which was this weekend, well, um, yeah, early, early this weekend, man, I was completely burnt out, made some poor decisions. It's like, oh my God. And I, you know, I, I hated myself for it. I thought I was so stupid. I knew I was knew that was coming. But yeah. do you know what that is? That is much better than being t- ten days than six months of going down the pan and not realizing that until you, you know, you've got a, a a bunch of pills you want to swallow, or you, you know, you're going to flip and blow your head off because that that's 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 where it gets to. You just you, you see things quicker, you deal with it quicker, mm. or even reactively. Unfortunately, reactively, but like this weekend but i know really quick right let's turn this around because this is gonna go pizza like i said you yeah. go off, you start going off the edge of that cliff uh wrong analogy really you start going you know going creeping over the edge of a of a hill towards the cliff and the longer you leave it the faster you you descend down you you know mate it's uh yeah and you i think we everyone now is so busy and you're kind of i think Actually, Instagram and social media, Instagram particularly, but social media is really terrible when you, you're you having a really shit time 
and then there's people that are posting photos of like in the film industry like this happens a lot where you know people will post photos of them on a shoot and you're like i've not done a shoot in a month why are they shooting and i what's wrong with me and of course that's a photo that they took six months ago and they're just i mean i'm guilty of it i do all the time um in fact, actually, I don't do it all the time, but occasionally I do it. Um, and so you, yeah, I think I think it just gives you a kind of a false impression of what you what you should be doing. And how how many times in our lives, really, if you if you stop for an hour, like what is going to be the impact of that? If you're completely honest, you know, if you cancel a meeting and say, right, I'm going to have an hour for myself, like what's the impact of of that on your on your life? It's probably you know, it's probably going to have zero impact on your career or your future or whatever, but it will have a massive impact, positive impact on you personally to be able to like, you know, give yourself a bit of time and work out do you tr- what you should be doing. Do you, do you have trouble? Do you, did you, have you had trouble doing that? Sort of relaxing, taking an hour and seeing the benefit of being unproductive? Um, I'm really bad at it, actually. Like, kind of preaching what I don't practice um it's a it's yeah. a lesson it's a it's something same here and it's something my missus pulls the flipping hair out of it I'm always trying to, you know, I've got to keep myself busy constantly and I don't know where that comes I have a feeling I know where it comes from but but I I over the last sort of year I've realized um the the benefit in doing absolutely bugger all absolutely bugger all see that yeah. you might have seen that I got a little knock here over there so like fr- so Saturday morning, when I you know when I realised oh my god I am absolutely fried. SIM card came out with my Huawei. Didn't want yeah. trying to listen to me in the weekend. I put it into a Nokia. I was like right, that's it done. I, I, I didn't even say anything. They didn't tell anyone right because yeah. I, I just put it in Nokia. People can still phone me or text me. I've got kids as well, so they can get older me as well. And uh, I on the Saturday, my god, it was easier to chill. Because my phone, I did not, and I'm not, don't be wrong, right? I am not someone who sits there and does the flicking finger through Instagram thing yeah. constantly, right? I'm not someone who does a lot. I use, for the most part, I use social media f- functionally. Podcasts and stuff like that, for the most part. Let's have a drink and things run over. Yeah. But, uh, but, so, but if the phone's there, I'm on it. Like, it's one of those, it was one less thing to keep me busy with to keep me occupied so that went off and i i found i watched one of the things i can't do tom is i struggle to maintain focus to watch a film if i'm on my own uh, it is uh, it's like not gonna happen if i'm with yeah. the missus or I'm with the kids watching something for some reason i can do it and sit there and chill like that on my own ain't happening it's almost i think uh, i'm just being lazy i'm not doing anything i'm not achieving anything here on the weekend because I, I had a nokia and my phone was off. That wasn't happening. I tried to keep away from my laptop. Yeah. Quite a couple of times to do some bits and bobs. But I watched two or three films on Saturday. I just did nothing. Two or three films. It was like, I was flipping heck. That's just like, because I, yeah. I took the SIM card out of my smartphone. <laughs> that, it was, I was like, this is brilliant. I, I was, I actually enjoyed it. Yeah. Watched Some of All Fears. Never seen it. What a brilliant film. <laughs> I don't think I've seen that it. Proper old, that very brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, Again, it's just little things like that. Oh, God, we're so we are so not naive. 
we're so ignorant in society of um, our mental and physical well-being and how important it is and how much it can impact the quality of your life. You know, I shudder to think how many people get to the end of life and they just like, man, what did I get? What did I find that a quality life? Yeah, you know, and that is different for different people. For some people, it's you know doing good in the community. For other people, it's just being a good parent. You know, other people, it's turns out and being making billions and billions and billions and billions and yeah, you know, whatever. But I think it, I should. We, we owe it to ourselves to try and give us the best shot at being content when we're on death's door. You know, um, but we're so ignorant with it now. One of the things I I, I thought was mega with uh, with Boris recently. Boris Johnson was they have advocating the fitness. I can't remember when a PM did that. Like he, like he has. They've yeah. paid it lip service in the past, but he said, "I'm go- I am make not go out and keep. It. I am making an effort." And he's no slim kid, right? You know, he's got a life of indulgence behind him, but he's getting out there and sort of setting that tone. It's flipping brilliant. It's flipping brilliant. And the only reason I think it's brilliant is because I know the benefits of getting out and being physically active, even just walking, man. Yeah, you know, um, I think. So my major, so after getting over, well, dealing with the PTSD and everything else, my major take-home point of everything I did on, on Mert and Everest and all the other stuff is that it can all be over so quickly that you have to, you should really sort of, you know, not try and live for the moment and spend every waking second, you know, doing this or doing that because then you just burn out and you get burnt out and you don't appreciate stuff but just find you know just understand that it can be done before you know it and you want to make sure that you don't feel like you've wasted your whole life and you know I've met someone recently that it's like I would give up any kind of any film or any job um, to be able to do something. I mean, I'm not going to give up my job or career or anything, but like, you know, to spend more time with with them, I would sacrifice uh, a lot more other stuff because, like, for me, like I said before, people are the most important thing, and the only thing that really makes me feel content is by doing stuff with someone that I really want to do it with, um, and that's you know, after picking up probably three or four hundred casualties on Mert, that's the one thing that I really sort of took away from it all mm. yeah uh, it, i used to uh I, th- I think that's what it is for me with the with the having to keep busy all the time yeah i think it's um and this is the lesson i'm learning uh, so i've been at it for years and i think it is that part there you know, part of it is that man you're here like let's not waste it yeah. let's 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 get let's get busy buddy yeah. right yeah but then i think uh, i think I don't know why I didn't decide to, but but what I'm learning now is that you can be productive by not being productive, kind of thing. It's like, it's like where, where what it, again? It's back to that. What do I want in life? What what do I see as living my life properly? And it's it's not necessarily flipping. Well, it's not doing lots of material, filling my time up with lots of material things. You know, like um, volunteer stuff and business ideas and all that. that. It's not. It's not. There's there's stuff outside of that. For example, it's downtime. You know, it's that giving yourself a break because it's valuing that because because I'm a better person. You know, and I <clears throat> I gave some thought like, last year to like what what that question of 
what's the meaning of life? What's the point of it? You know, what, what, and it goes back to, I was thinking about what, what do I want have done at the end? If I were there on my deathbed and they go, what do you reckon? You, how would your life, what do you think your life, was it worth it? Kind of thing. What do you, what do I want to have achieved? And I think it's sim- for me, I think it's just simply, have you been a good person? And you can't be a good person all of the time, but you can flip and well try, you know, and I definitely haven't been a good person in the past sometimes. Um, but I think that's where it is. Just be a good person. And I think with that, for me anyway, and that gives me so much free reign in that what I want, what I can do day to day yeah. is not make a million pounds or, you know, 10 million or X amount of money. It's not have a successful business, for example. It's simply just be good. Just be a good dude. You know, be someone respected. It just, yeah. and that could be by one person or by flipping millions. You know, and uh, it gives me free reign. So if I want to sit down and slouch in front of the TV and eat some eat some popcorn and Pringles, I can do. Because <laughs> I'll be happier and more relaxed the next day with her missus or my kids and I'm being a good person. Why are you a good yeah. person? I've been a slob yesterday, that's why. <laughs> no, but you see what I mean? Yeah. I'm going a bit deep there, but yeah, it's... Uh, it's it's mad. It, it it it's the the mental health thing. Understanding your 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 brain and your emotions. It's, it's so complex and so it's just crazy. And so the sim the sim the more simple you can make it, the better. Like you were saying, you know, people need to understand themselves. Uh, chip away. You identify a, a feeling. Why is it there? Okay. Now why is that? Why is that reason there? Let's yeah. get rid of it. Let's eliminate that. And just. Uh, fucking happier man there's so many people that are just in clip yeah in absolute clip and, and a lot of them don't even realize it they don't they don't chip away they don't look, try and look between the below the first level of anatomyness you know? yeah uh, and you know everyone feels shit every now and then you just have to work out how to make yourself feel a tiny bit better especially as gingers mate all the time <laughs> all of the time <laughs> you're you're strawberry blonder uh, that was blonde. The rest, <laughs> pretty ginger. <laughs> what's um, what's next for dust off? Um, so uh, Kenya's the next thing. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's uh, three weeks in Kenya, two weeks uh, shooting with the Rangers, um, and then after that, I'm hoping there'll be a trip to Nepal, which will be a month long if it happens. Um, kind of COVID dependent at the moment. Everest again. Uh, same region, but not not Everest. I'm supposed to go back to Everest uh, either next year or the or the year after, but yeah, we'll see. Um, and then there's the Mozambique thing, which is Diamond Docks. That'll be edited in LA. So um, from Thursday, I might be out of the country for three months, kind of aiming for three months. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see what, what crops up. Yeah. Well, mate, it's been a... Uh, in fact, is there anything we haven't mentioned that you want to mention? No. How um, do people find your website? Dust uh, off. Yeah, dustofffilms.com. Nice and simple. Yeah. And Instagram. You've got a cool Instagram. Uh, so there's, there is a Dust Off Films Instagram, but I'm really bad at keeping that up to date. Okay. So mine is at Martinson, which I don't know if I'm going to spell it on there. <laughs> <laughs> Dust Off Films, do that. <laughs> if, you, if you find the Dust Off Films Instagram, follow that, and then it, it should be pretty obvious. I'll, I'll put my actual Instagram in the Dust Off Films Instagram. I'll, I'll tag it in anything. Yeah. Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, good luck with Kenya. Good luck with Mozambique and, uh, and, and, oh yeah, Diamond Docks. And we'll do it when you get back. Get back on when you get back. So get back on when you get back. Yeah, I'd love the to. Podcast. 
Oh, shout out to Chris Shirley for the introduction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, in the accidental introduction when he smashed his leg up in Italy. He's hobbling around pretty pretty quickly now. Bootnecks, mate. Yeah. Bootnecks. Almost as bad as Ruffridge. No, joke. <laughs> mate, Jen, oh, been a pleasure. Good luck. Cheers. Cheers, bud. That's it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can uh, you can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts or go on the website charliecharlie1.com, which is the podcast website and hit become a patron and uh, you get access to all the episodes early before anyone else does. And uh, you also get um, you get some free stash. You get some exclusive event invites. You also you get there's lots of different perks. You should, you should sign up and have a look. Patreon.com forward slash HK Podcasts. Also, thank you to our sponsors again, Rugby for Heroes, at Rugby Number 4 Heroes on social media. Keep an eye out uh, on their social media and on their website for uh, upcoming events. They are um, headed by Mike Valance, who's one of the founders of Forces Barbarians RFC, who are, who are tightly tied in now with uh, Rugby for Heroes, and it's a great pleasure to be involved with uh, with both those organisations and to have them as a sponsor of the podcast. So thank you. Uh, their website is rugbyforheroes.org, rugbyforheroes.org. Also, thank you to the Aardvark Group, who are protecting and saving lives around the world uh, due to their groundbreaking uh, industry-leading technology, um, getting rid of uh, landmines, personnel mines, anti-tank mines, uh, unexploded ordnance space, unexploded ordnance, basically, uh, literally saving lives all over, all over the world. Protecting civilians, protecting the military. So thank you to those guys. At, not at, it's uh, group is their website. Yeah, go to aardvark.group, follow more about those guys. Um, thank you, Aardvark. Thank you, Rugby Heroes. Thank you to you for listening. Uh, please leave an iTunes review. Uh, and you can watch these, you can watch all these episodes on YouTube as well, if you didn't realise. So just go onto YouTube and search for, you search my name, Hugh Keir, or you can search for H Hour Podcast and you'll find it. That's it. Until next time. Out.